Hey, Jen. Hey, Tina. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. You're listening to Speaking of Racism. Okay, so welcoming to the show today to women that I am so incredibly honored to speak with and to share with the audience, Syra Rao and Regina Jackson. Thank you both so much for the time and for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. So I want to just start by checking in with you and asking how you are, how you are doing, and can you share right now what's on your heart that you want to share with folks that are listening as we are all in the middle of the coronavirus or in the middle of this global pandemic and, and social distancing and sheltering in place? How are you doing? And It's very day-to-day. Um, today is not a great day. This is actually, it's nice to hear all of your voices because it's cheering me um, considerably. I think... Um, you know, it's bad. It, and, and it's really kind of the logical conclusion of um, capitalism and white supremacy, frankly. And I tweeted about this, something to this deg- extent, like two weeks ago, and got flooded with the normal hate, even got quoted by the New York Post about how being woke is like a disease worse than the pandemic. My tweet was somehow worse than the pandemic. And so just using very basically, um, you know, someone said the virus was not man-made, but the pandemic was. And I thought that was really smart. I wish I remember who that was. But if Hillary Clinton was our president, we wouldn't be here right now. We wouldn't be in the situation right now. Uh, would, would the virus have hit the United States? Of course. Would she have lied and, um, and been, would she have, first of all, dismantled all of the um, agencies in the pandemic offices Barack Obama created? Of course not. Um, we just wouldn't be in the situation where New York City now, a city in this country, is the is has more deaths than any other country in the world. And so when we say white supremacy hurts everyone, not just black and brown and indigenous people, but everyone, including white people, this is what we mean. And look at the numbers. 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump. Let's even set that number aside. Let's look to the 47% who did not vote for Donald Trump. Here's my challenge is how many of you white women who did not vote for Donald Trump killed yourselves to get Hillary Clinton elected. One of your own, by the way, a fellow, you know, fancy white woman. Um, Very, very few. And black, indigenous, and brown people, you know, we busted our asses to get Hillary Clinton elected because we knew what was coming. And this is, this is it. This is it. So if, if folks can't put together um, connect the dots, how white supremacy has gotten us here and capitalism has gotten us here. It feels like, uh, it, you know, who's going to explain that? It's very hard to explain. So I am extremely angry. I've had um, uh, several very close friends, thank God, recover from this disease, all in their 40s. These are not old people, uh, but got very, very, very sick. And to think that people are dying because of something that we could have avoided, uh, it makes me angry. It makes me angry that my kids are being robbed partially of their childhood. Um, It makes me angry that people are starving. It makes me angry that doctors and healthcare workers and nurses are wearing garbage bags to work and risking their lives and dying. 
um, because our government won't provide very basic things. So I'm, I'm mad. That's where I am. I'm mad. I'm also extremely privileged and grateful that I live in a house with a backyard and it's been sunny and I have, my family is healthy right now. Um, we have food on the table, but I am the exception, not the rule. And, and that's not right. So that's where I am right now. Where I am, I was actually doing some research last week on some things that we're putting on our uh, website. And what I discovered that was so shocking to me is more white men voted for Hillary Clinton than white women. White women do not support each other. We've seen that with Elizabeth Warren. We've seen that with Amy Klobuchar. They just don't support each other. And we've got to change that because I am of the firm opinion at this stage in my life, and I am an old person. (laughs) I'm a 69-year-old black woman. I will be 70 this year. And I honestly believe that for this world to change, women have got to take over. You know, I'm done with old white men. Nothing changes. I will be supporting Biden. And the reason I'll be doing that is because I think that the candidates who ran that are more progressive will have a lot of say in that platform. So hopefully we can get universal health care. We can get some things that all of us need to survive. And I am also a very privileged black woman. I live in a nice home. I have a good life. I work for myself, so I don't have to worry about, you know, losing all of my income. But what I do miss is my grandchildren. Because I have underlying conditions, the first time I went, my son blessed me out good. He said, Mom, you need to go home. He said, I could be a carrier and you could get sick and I wouldn't even know. So I've not seen my grandchildren except to wave, you know, through the window of the car since March 9th. You know, I think what this uh, pandemic is teaching us is we are all connected. You cannot separate out who's going to live and who's going to die, who's going to get the virus and who's not. We are all connected. And until we understand that as human beings and come together to support livable wages, health care, housing for all of us, none of us are going to make it. What I really appreciated about what both of you said is that it was just completely real and completely raw. And I think that we have a hard time in society being truly honest about how we're doing. And I really have get, I've come to a place where I hate the question, how are you? How are you doing? Mm. Um, because the answer can't really be anything other. If we're being honest with ourselves, we're we're shitty. This is not good. This is not good. It doesn't feel good. Even if I'm having a moment of this isn't as bad as I maybe you know was when I was in a dark place, like adjusting and ad- adapting to this new normal and all of the implications, not only in our personal lives, but as we're looking around in our communities and in our neighborhoods with our families and our friends, um, it's, it's, it's not a good situation. And it, it, it gets, 
It feels as though it gets more dire as the day goes by. It feels like information is so hard to decipher and navigate. What do we believe? What do we not believe? How do we find a balance between paying attention to the the numbers, noticing the fact that the Black community is dying of this virus at larger numbers than white folks and other communities? How, How do we make sense of this president and this administration that is completely inept, incapable, uncaring, um, and just unable to lead. You know, Syra, you spoke to that. If, if Hillary Clinton was president, we would not be going through it this way. And that's speaking directly to the lack of leadership that we have in the White House. Your answers about how you're doing and what's on your heart and what do you want to share with people are the most honest that I've heard. Here's what I want to say. What infuriates me more than the White House. What is more problematic for me is the Senate enabling him to just do this to us, our country, our money. That makes me matter than anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what where Regina and I shake out. And this is the um, sort of the the crux of race to dinner is we're not here to um, point our fingers at Donald Trump. That's so obvious. One thing that really struck me, I went to Germany a couple of years ago. And um, have you all been to Berlin? Oh, yes. Many times. Okay. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know this, right? Like what's really interesting is there's not this fixation and fascination around Hitler. Right. It's um, because they had truth and reconciliation after World War II mm-hmm. and um, went to their what would be called the Holocaust Museum here, but they, there it's called the Topography of Terror. And it was just photograph after photograph after photograph of regular Germans during, you know, the period before and after the final solution and how, uh, you know, it was white Germans just hanging out like at the beach or skiing or, ha- you know, whatever, like, and it's the banality of evil, right? And so, that let's let's use that with Donald Trump. It's exactly what Regina said. It's it's not. It's the Senate. Yes. It's also why is the Treasury Department um, halting these checks until they can get his name on there? You know, like wh- they could have just said no. You know, like it's it's um, it's everybody surrounding him and the culture surrounding him and the culture of apathy and privilege surrounding him. It's white women baking sourdough bread. Um, from morning until night, I want to know how many of these women who are doing TikToks and Snapchats and Instagrams and Facebooks um, around their sourdough, I want to know how many of these women have given money, which is what we can do right now if we have it, um, given money to healthcare workers and grocery store workers and truck drivers and anybody who's actually keeping us alive right now. You know, sourdough bread is not going to save us. Um, and frankly, trying to crowdfund a global pandemic is probably not like it's not great. We need the national government, but it's the culture that has given us Donald Trump, and it's the culture that is sustaining Donald Trump. And I and and Regina hates when I say this because she's she hates when I put things into the universe. But it's the culture that more likely than not will give us Donald Trump again. Um, and so if our great resistance, after all the marching, after all the organizing, after all the crowdfunding, after all the safety pins and pink pussy hats, our resistance has yielded us Joe fucking Biden. Like it feels very hard um, to say the system is working beautifully. We have two septuagenarian racist rapist white dudes on the ballot this year. 
Like those are our choices. That's the resistance. That's our fucking resistance. So, um, yeah, anyway, I, 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 well, and this is why we're mad, right? (laughs) This is, this, this is exactly why we're mad. And I think that your ability to verbalize that and, and speak so clearly, um, and directly to that this is about the, the, the systems that we've created that have propped up both of these candidates. We have- Well, I'm going I'm to correct you there. It is not we, it's white people, okay? I want to be real clear <laughs> yeah. about I, I receive that. I receive that. Yeah. Not us, yeah. white people. Every system in this country is designed to perpetrate and uplift white supremacy. So no, we did not create this, but this is a part of America. And what we have to work actively to do is to dismantle it. And that's our work that we do with white women, trying to say, you you know, they don't get a chance to say they, they don't get a chance to say not all women, they don't get a chance to say, well, my civil rights resume, Uh uh-uh, no. You created this and you need to be dismantling it. Okay. So I think this would be a really good introduction to what you do in your work together. Tina, would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. So can you tell us about how you met and came together and just what went into creating Race to Dinner and and what you do with that? Um, I ran for Congress um, in tw- exactly a year ago, 2018, and it makes me like cry. All my Facebook memories are popping up from two years ago. And um, anyway, what happened is I um, I didn't. I, no one was more surprised than me in 2016 when I learned that I wasn't a white woman. So I spent 40 years of my life as a white feminist, um, which is super weird because I'm dark skinned South Asian woman, and I. Uh, you know, most of my friends growing up uh, in Richmond, Virginia, and I went to the University of Virginia. I was in an all-white sorority. I mean, I wore Laura Ashley. I had pearls. I made out with guys who called me exotic and wore Confederate flags. I mean, the self-loathing is hard to even put into words. I mean, I was the I was the most toxic white woman you could ever find, and um, I just had this great awakening when, frankly, this the election of twenty sixteen happened because. Um, I dropped everything for a year and I, I sincerely did everything in my power to get Hillary Clinton elected. We housed Canadian volunteers. I phone banked every day. I, I canvassed every day, um, held fundraiser after fundraiser after fundraiser. And I couldn't get any of my super liberal um, upper middle class white lady friends to do anything, literally to do anything. And um, they were always too busy. You know, they had soccer games and lacrosse games and this and that and work and they're crazy because oh, nobody is crazier busy than a super liberal upper middle class last white woman. Um, and so I just had this radical awakening at that point of, oh, my God, they don't give a fuck because their um, their lives and their minds are unaffected, whether or not Donald Trump is elected. And I knew that was different for me. And so I spent the year 2017, just really on Facebook, um, really kind of out there in the world exposing, they all thought I'd gone crazy, that I'd lost my mind, that I'd become radicalized, all these things. I mean, I was called um, whispers that maybe I was turning into a Muslim um, terrorist, um, all sorts of stuff. And in the fall of 2017, I actually ended up meeting Amy Klobuchar, um, Kirsten Gillibrand, and 
Elizabeth Warren is and was in DC, and I was really um, taken aback by how little of a plan they had to combat Donald Trump. Number one, turned out that's true, and just how little they understood um, anything around intersectional feminism. Um, I was trying to explain what a Becky was to Amy Klobuchar, which is another story altogether. It's really funny. Um, she was like, but my name is Amy. And I was like, oh my God. Um, anyway, uh, I then um, our, our congresswoman here is a super liberal white woman named Diana DeGette and has, it will now have been in, in, in office for 24 years. And in early 2017, she told one of my friends, a brown woman, at the town hall. So this is right when ICE was starting to terrorize communities of color all over the country and also in Denver, very much in Denver. And she decided to hold her annual town hall in, in no less the police building. Who is not going to come to the police building? So it was like a thousand people, something like six non-white people. And my brown woman friend stood up and asked her about um, what she was doing to protect communities of color. She tried to kick my brown woman friend out. And when she followed up with her, she told her, one of her staffers told her that civil rights were not one of her issues. How convenient. That is literally white feminism in a nutshell. And um, so I wrote an article at the end of 2017 in December that the Huffington Post published. It's interesting. I work in the media and know tons and tons of editors and it got passed over by everyone. It was called, I'm a brown woman who's breaking up with the Democratic Party. It wasn't until the essay fell into the lap of a black woman editor at the Huffington Post that it got picked up. And when it published, it went viral in 10 seconds. Like Rosie O'Donnell, I guess, tweeted it the next morning and the, the rest is history. Um, and lots and lots of calls like, why don't you run for Congress? Why don't you run for Congress? And I thought to myself, you know what? Um, I have no chance of winning. Who am I? The primary was five months later. Um, but if not me, then who? And if I can't try to elevate this conversation around white supremacy in the Democratic Party as well as the Republican Party, I can shut up. So I did. I was one of the last people in the country to file with the FEC in January of 2018. And I ran for Congress on this explicit anti-racism platform and was given in February a 2% chance of getting more than 12% of the vote. And after five months, I finished with 34% of the vote, over 42,000 votes. And so um, it ended up being, um, kind of this incredible thing. Anyway, that's how Regina and I met. So you want to, want to weigh in Regina? Yes. So, uh, this woman friend of Cyrus that went to the police meeting is also a friend of my husband and I, she actually worked with my husband as a partner in his law firm. So she introduced Cyrus and I, and, um, I immediately fell in love with Cyrus because she likes to talk shit. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that's my kind of woman. So um, I volunteered on her campaign and we started, you know, doing the campaign thing and I would help her and everything. And then she would always do these, uh, these uh, breakfast, lunch, dinner cocktails with white women who wanted to meet with her when she was running for office to basically say, not me. So Syra was spending a lot of hours doing that and a lot of money because, of course, they never pick up the tab. So Syra would have to pick up the tab, pay for babysitter and everything. So a friend of mine, a previous friend of mine, a white woman, very well off, came to me and she said, you know, Regina, um, I, I'm just done, Syra. She hates white people. 
And then the next breath, she says to me, but if you can talk to her, I'd love to go to lunch with her to sit down and talk. So I went to Siren. I said, um, this friend wants to go out to lunch with you to talk about, you know, racism. And Syra goes, you know what, Regina? She said, I'm not doing that anymore. She said, but I have a friend who's going to set up a dinner. And if your friend wants to come and we have a group of white ladies and you do it with me, she said, I'll do it. And that was it. That was it. That's how. So that was in December of 2018. Um, we had the dinner, this, this former friend of Regina's went completely, I mean, she, she like performed, um, white fragility <laughs> physical, I mean, full blown screaming, crying, um, you know, call this angry. Where's the Can't we all just love each other? Can't we? Yeah. Like all of it. And then, um, whatever we like left and we were like, wow, that was like, that was fucking crazy. Um, and then we kind of forgot about it. And then last year, January, or it was February of last year. So really recently I ran into this former friend of Regina's and she was, I mean, you can't even make it up. It's like a SNL skit. She was listening to um, a podcast on anti-racism and she was like, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm, I'm running into you right now. I finally understand what you and Regina are saying. I want to host a dinner at my house. And we we're like, okay. So we, we did it thinking. So she, this woman you, it, it's so violent, but we can laugh about it now. She invited six white friends who kind of knew each other, kind of didn't. And then the two of us, we assumed, Regina and I assumed, they knew why they were there. She just invited them to, quote, a dinner party. So we start getting into this talk oh of racism. God. The next thing you know, one of these women tries to reach over and grab me by the collar uh, because I told another white woman in the room that white women um, – doing yoga for the most part and selling yoga in this country has been cultural appropriation. And this other woman leaned over and tried to grab me and insisted that I apologize um, to her. And and the woman, the yoga instructor was like, no, 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 please don't apologize. Like you're right. You know? Um, and then a, a, another white woman kept using the N word, but saying it out loud and, and started crying and telling Regina and I that, uh, she's sitting next to Regina, an actual living, breathing black woman. And it's, go ahead, Regina, tell her what she's saying to you. And she's telling me how hard her life was growing up because her mother was involved in civil rights work in the South. And she got called the N-word all the time and, you know, how awful it was. I mean, this these women were so unreal. But what we know about white women is they love to center everything on them. So we don't allow that. When we do our dinners, guess what? You don't get to cry. If you have to cry, you have to leave the room. It, this is not about you. We are not talking about you. So you don't get to center you. Yeah. So we left and, and I came home that night, actually. It was, it was really off the chains. Um, and I paid my babysitter and I thought to myself, you know, fool me 1 million, 10 billion times, shame on you. And now it's kind of like shame on me. Like, what am I doing? And so the next morning I just got on Facebook and I wrote about the dinner, like that Regina and I had done. And within hours, that Facebook post had gone completely viral. We had hundreds of women saying, we want to do a dinner. We want to do a dinner. And Regina and I were like, you know what? Maybe this is something we can do. And so she, Regina came up with the genius title race to dinner. And that was it. That's how it was born. And it was a, a year ago. And they have to pay us because yep. that's the, uh, that 
white women weaponize against us is their money. So this particular friend of mine, the one that held the awful dinner, um, we have a website with a Patreon and we charge five or $12 a month. Now this is a white woman who told me that she's a widow. Since her husband died, her income is just is $200,000 a year. And I asked her to support us on Patreon. She said to me, put it back on Facebook. So we are no longer friends. You know, you will not weaponize your money against me. You don't have to pay it to me, but guess what? I'm done. Yeah. So yeah, that's how we started Race to Dinner. And it's just been, I mean, we've done no marketing. We've done no, I mean, nothing. And it's really uh, taken off, which is exciting. We would have had, I mean, we would have had something like 20, 25 dinners uh, plus through the summer had the pandemic not happened. So white women want to do it. And it's such a incredible opportunity for white women to listen to black and brown voices and to do so and have to give up something, have to give up their um, image of themselves as being the center, being the priority, having to be protected all of the time, um, not being able to cry while they're at the dinner with you, having to compensate you for your time, your expertise, your wisdom, um, your shared experience. It's incredibly powerful. So my question now is, well, two questions. One, can you share the profile of the white women that even want to be a part of these dinners where they're told they can't cry, they can't act out in their, in, in, they can't act out in whiteness, they can't act out in their violent behavior or they, or they will be called out, they'll be asked to leave all, you know, and, and just basically following rules that will keep both of you safe and, and not, well, I won't say safe because you're not safe on in this setting where there's white women that are, um, you know, that, that you are feeding into basically as far as giving them the opportunity to listen. So you're putting yourselves at risk just being in that space. Um, but I'm curious as to what is the profile of this white woman that wants to be there. And then I also would like to know what is the effect as far as when it's time to go, when they leave, how do they receive this time with you? And then do you know what they leave with, if that makes sense? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can start. Um, so I want to, I want to say that there has been a shift in our methodology. Um, so most of last year, it was very much about, um, not centering their feelings. Regina and I doing a lot of the talking, um, that ended with a lot of crying, a lot of anger, a lot of storming out. Um, I lost a very close friendship over that. Um, so we no longer let white women who are our personal friends be part of this for that reason. Um, but what hit me and Regina towards the end of last year's they leave, right? So in some ways, this is a um, big pat on the back for themselves. Like, look at what I did. I'm done now. I've, re- I've I read White Fragilia. I attended a race to dinner. I'm good. And they're not in community. For the most part, white women are not in community with women of color. So they might have their errant token black, indigenous, or brown woman friend, um, which I used to serve as that person for hundreds of women. Um, but they're not in community with us. And so we decided we need to create a sort of a paradigm 
by which they could actually continue this work without us there. And we switched it and there's been a big shift in A, how they, they act at the dinner and B, what happens after. So now to be fair and Jen, you know, to be fair to you as a white woman, like you don't know what you don't know. And cognitive dissonance is a euphemism for denial. And we all are privy to that. Mm. And what we realize is a lot of like, and this is what our book is about or will be about is white women don't even know all the different ways they participate in white supremacy. So what we do is kind of turn it on self-reflection. And instead of um, telling, we allow them to show themselves and each other how their racism plays out in every day. And, um, and then, and then they're able to do the work, which they have. We are seeing a big uptick, less crying, more, huh? Aha. Like, wow moments. And um, they're in some cases creating groups where they're meeting once or twice a month. And so like almost like a book club, they're doing like Becky Sundays and meeting to talk about anti-racism work and, and how their racism has showed up, you know, in the previous weeks. Um, So that's, I mean, that's, that's been interesting. So go, go ahead, Regina, I'll let you talk a little bit about what the profile is of the woman. I think generally these are, um, middle, middle class to upper middle class white women. A lot of them are mothers, uh, another group. That's the basic group in there. Anywhere I would say from mm, 20s with the majority being in the 30s and 40s. And then we have some who are uh, older. So, um, you know, these are people who have access to resources. They have access to power. And um, I like to say, I grew up, I was born in 1950. So I grew up during a time when everything in America was black and white. Um, The only white friendships I had were in school. And then after school, we all went to our own groups. So I have very low expectations of white people, probably none. And I am... You know, that's just my mindset. And I think, um, you know, when I see white women acting out, it's what I've always known. So it's not surprising to me. Um, It doesn't upset me. It doesn't bother me. But I am very much, I want them to own their own stuff. When you can see any human being or animal be mistreated and not step up and say, that's not okay with me. You need to stop. You are definitely part of the problem. Yeah. And, and I just want to add to that. So that's where part of our dogma is, is modeling intersectionality. And so like Regina said, she's a black woman. Um, We're different generations. I'm an Indian woman. I'm first generation Indian American. Um, We're modeling Brown and black um, sisterhood. Um, Our thesis is we're welcoming white women to join our sisterhood the only way that works is if white women understand that and fully internalize that their liberation is, is tied to ours. So they're not doing this as a being a, because they're good people or they're good white women. They're doing it because they need to, to join with us and choose gender over whiteness to get liberated. Um, it's also a great place for me. I talk a lot about um, Asian anti-blackness. And so it's funny, like, you know, we always ask at the beginning, how many of you are racist and, that's changed a little bit too, because now they know. 
um, but early on, zero, zero or racist. And then, you know, we'd ask, um, except for me, I'd always raise my hand and they'd be like, what? And I'm like, yes, I'm on the receiving end of racism by white people and on the giving end of anti-black racism because I've been taught that just like you have been taught to be racist. And, um, and then they'd look at Regina and be like, oh my God, do you see like your partner over there's anti-black? And Regina's like, yeah, I know all Asians are anti-black. We know that. Um, and so for them to understand that there's an ecosystem and, and it takes accountability and radical honesty in all of our parts, including my own part in order to dismantle it. And so, um, you know, that's, that, that's the whole thing. And I know, I know these women because I've like Regina said, you know, she didn't grow up with them. I grew up, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, born and raised, um, 110 years after slavery quote ended And there were no people who look like me. I mean, I got tormented by everybody, black kids, white kids, ever, you know, all of it. And so I was forced to quote assimilate and assimilation of course meant to assimilate to white culture. God forbid you assimilate to black culture. And so I was, I was taught from the time I was little to hate myself um, and to see black people and indigenous peoples lesser. God forbid anyone thought that I was an Indian, like a native American Indian. I was asked if I was dot or feather all the time. I mean, it's like, so, so we just have these very honest conversations. So they, you know, we ask, are you racist? They're not. And then the next question Regina asks is, okay, how many of you would trade places with me or Syrah? None of them. So number one, they're not racist, but they wouldn't want to be us. And then I say, okay, if you had to, if you had to gun to your head, you had to trade places with me, an Indian woman or Regina, a black woman, who would you pick? Of course they pick me. Unanimously they pick me. So we so so the reality is they know, right? They actually know. Um, but it's the elephant in the room, so they can't talk about it. So we now have shifted it to let's talk about an instance of your that's how we kick it off now. Um, of your name your most recent um racist act or thought. And so we really have shifted it so they are doing most of the talking and we are just facilitating it. So and flagging the behavior you know this let think about this and think about that and this is what you did and how would you do it differently are you finding that when the women come they're coming more out of curiosity or are they coming to these dinners more out of conviction yeah very interesting we also do uh one-on-one sessions private sessions with people who just want to talk about where they're at. I think those people in my experience and Syra can answer those people are more committed to this is what I'm doing. Help me understand what's racist and how I can change it. And I think what Syra says is so important because they know, they know that what they're doing is all right. They know they wouldn't want it for them. And the big question is, so why are you allowing it for other people? And, you know, I have come to the conclusion, and I have a friend who says this all the time, they don't care until it impacts them. There's nothing like enlightened self-interest. Yeah. Yeah. And further to that question, it's a good one, Tina. Um, Is it conviction or is it curiosity? Um, I think it's a mix. Um, even within each woman, it's a mix. And I've, I've been surprised um, as to who ends up sticking with it. So, um, you know, in some cases, younger women 
who um, you would think would be more committed, blah, 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 end up being offended and leave. Older women stick around. I mean, you, you just never know, right? Like you never know who is going to, something hits someone a certain way and they are, um, you know, ready to actually do the work. And then some things hit people another way and they're not. I mean, I'll tell you, I had a um, call last year with a very famous actress who I will not name um, because I've decided to stop blowing myself up at every chance that I get. Um, And she and I had a really long conversation, but probably like an hour and a half. And um, she had found me on Twitter and um, was engaging with me. And and we had this call and, and, you know, really honest, radically honest. And then she literally dropped off the planet and will not engage with me anymore. I've tried to DM her a couple of times to ask her to like help amplify certain things, nothing. And she is now like all over the place um, doing appearances with Amy Klobuchar and doing this and doing that. And I'm like, you know, it's, it's so sad because the people that you think are going to be a certain way end up not being. So I think in her case, that was curiosity and not conviction. Um, but there are more often than not, I think it's curiosity. And I would say probably one out of every 10, uh, to 15 women end up leaving with pure conviction, but you have to start somewhere. And we've heard a lot about the toxic white liberal and toxic white moderate that MLK and Malcolm X told us about. Um, in some ways, what we're doing, Tina and Jen, is is adding some, I, no pun intended, adding some color around that. Like, what is it? What is, what are the behaviors? So um, like, let's use an example. My name, Syra Rao. It's hard. It's hard for anyone. It's hard for Indian people. Um, it's hard for me. And um, look, Tina, I told you once how to pronounce my name and you got it because you made a conscious effort to get it. Uh, I can't tell you how many white people I've had to say my name to 15 times, 20 times, and then they'll laugh and just be like, I'm just going to call you Sai. And so the old me would be like, ha ha, okay. The new me is like, no, don't call me. Don't talk to me. We're done. We're not speaking. That's racism. Like not taking the time to learn how to pronounce someone's name erases that person. And um, these white women don't realize how often they do that. And um, that's what we do at these dinners. Like really kind of put some details around what it looks like to be racist and, you know, calling an Indian or black or Latinx woman or indigenous woman angry. Um, that's racism. And sometimes they don't get that. And then, you know, we tell them, we, we, they, they sort of hash it out. And then it becomes a matter of whether or not they want to do the work and actually start implementing some of this. Um, but like I said, it's like one out of every 10 to 15, but you got to start somewhere. So the book that you were writing, um, can you tell us a little bit how you went from the race to dinners and now there's a book coming out, which I'm really thrilled about because this is, um, I'm, I'm assuming it's a way that folks who don't have the opportunity to go to a race to dinner um, will be able to still learn from both of you and hear some of the stories that you have experienced from the race to dinner. So what can you tell us about the upcoming book? Well, it is going to be exactly that. We are going to start out with, you know, this is a dinner and what the dinner looks like and the behaviors we see and the people who are there and what went right and what went wrong and what did our hosts do and 
what they didn't do. So that is going to be the book. And then we will go into specific um, behaviors. I, I want to tell this story because I think it's really important. And we have a white woman who works with us. She does our administrative and um, office setting up Facebook posting, things like that. And she talked about an experience and it was so enlightening that she got it in herself. So um, her husband is a pastor and they recently took over, he recently took over a black church in Kansas City. They moved into the black community and there's a grocery store near her called Aldi's. And she said, um, it's, the produce isn't as nice. It's not as clean. You know, all the things that we see in uh, black communities. But she can drive further down the road about six miles to an Aldi's in a white community. And it is, you know, perfect. Great produce, clean, everything. And what she recognized in herself, and I thought this was so powerful, is she would bypass the black Aldi's and go to the white Aldi's. Now what she recognized is that was racism on her part. So now what she has done is set up a meeting with the manager in the black Aldi's to demand that they upgrade that store. That's it. Right. Yeah. Got it. That's, that's, that's exactly right. And then um, I'll give another example. Um, you know, I work in publishing and so I understand how books are made and white women make up the large majority of publishing, acquiring editors, women, people who decide what books are published. Why is that important? It's what we consume, right? It's media that we consume. It's what our kids read. Um, and a big chunk of what the world reads comes from the United States. So they're exporting white supremacy as well. A big chunk of what we see on TV, the underlying intellectual property are books. So white women in publishing wield an extraordinary amount of power in terms of um, how we, our cultural sensibilities and um, they're racist as fuck. And so I don't know um, how much, have, have you two been following the American dirt fiasco? I have um, not. I have okay. not either, no. Take a look. Google American Dirt when you get off. I mean, it really is. It's like the greatest hits of, of liberal white supremacy. White woman gets a humongous book deal um, writing a fictional book about a Mexican woman migrant who comes to this country. Um, I think it's a seven-figure book deal. She got like over a million dollars. Um, there's barbed wire on the cover. Um, the book the book launch party was in Manhattan with barbed wire on this beautiful table, barbed wire on her fingernails. Um, meanwhile, you know, actual migrants are dying in concentration camps. And here's this white lady drinking martinis with barbed wire on her fingers. Um, so there was a huge brouhaha that happened afterwards, rightly so, uh, because a woman who's badass, her name's Miriam, um, was hired by Miss Magazine to do a book review about American Dirt. It was an Oprah pick. It was getting, you know, every great review under the planet. And Miriam wrote a scathing, she is uh, Latinx, wrote a scathing review. What, is, what does Miss Magazine do? They kill the review. They won't publish the review. So Miriam does what she, I mean, she's just awesome. She went to Twitter and she literally published her review on Twitter. Had Miss Magazine just published her review, it would have been over and done. How many people read Miss Magazine book reviews? 
because her tweet went viral, it ended up putting a huge spotlight on publishing and, um, and the publisher was under a huge amount of scrutiny. They're like, how did this happen? How did this happen? It happened because 90 something, 90% of acquiring editors in New York city are white savior, white women, you know, that's, that's who acquired the book and their bosses are white men who want bottom lines. And so, um, I have been in meetings now for eight years with white women editors who will say to my face, um, they don't like so-and-so's book that we're trying to sell because they don't think the protagonist is like, is like quote likable. That happens 99.9% of the time when it's a black or brown woman writing a character um, that is honest and real, a black or brown character that's honest or real and not a white savior character. The books that we've been able to sell have been essentially white savior feel good books. Um, and so, uh, I can tell you how American dirt happened and it's by design. It's not an accident. It's by design. And so we have a whole chapter in our book about how white women in publishing are largely responsible for upholding white supremacy. And my agent, my literary agent who sold the book is a white woman. And what's extraordinary about this is, I mean, she and I have been through it. And there have been times where she's been like, you need to stop talking like this and you need to tone it down and blah, blah, blah. I mean, she's like gaslit the fuck out of me and tone police the fuck out of me. And she's come out on the other side and she's going to be interviewed for the book and is going to speak very honestly about her own racism and how, um, how her racism plays out in her relationship with me and in publishing. That is a breakthrough. That is a breakthrough. Um, she is a huge agent at one of the biggest um, agencies in the world. I mean, they rep Trevor Noah. So to have her on record talking about her own racism and how it plays out in publishing is massive. So I think it's going to be a pretty groundbreaking book, to be honest with you, because it's not like white, it's, it's specifics. Um, unlike white fragility, which is like sort of macro and it's being on the receiving end as brown and black women. And we're going to have white women, like high profile white women talk about their own racism, which I don't, to my mind, hasn't happened before. Oh, I am so excited about this. It's going to be pretty badass. Yeah. You can buy it for all your white lady friends. (laughs) Oh yeah. You know, know, yeah. Jen can buy it for all of her white lady friends and all the other white ladies can buy them for themselves. Yeah. Well, and we can promote it on the podcast and do a giveaway and you know, we're here. Great. Well, and I really am of the opinion that if anything is going to change in the world, I think I probably already said this, it's got to be women, women, because, you know, I always say white men have been in charge forever. And what has changed? Nothing. So if that well-meaning white woman, that good intentioned, I'm not racist white woman is listening to this podcast right now, and they are hearing the, all, all of the, the descriptions really of themselves they're and, and they're seeing themselves at these dinners and they're recognizing that, wow, maybe I do have some, maybe I do behave in racist ways that I wasn't aware of and I don't mean to, and I want to stop. How would you describe, or what would you say to that white woman that's listening who may not have an opportunity to get to a race to dinner, but who wants to begin that process of deconstructing their whiteness? What would you say to, to them? I think the first thing they have to do is acknowledge that they're racist. Syra likes to say, it's the water, it's the air, it's who we are. 
you know, just acknowledge, and we all play our role in racism. You know, it's, they have white supremacy has people of color fighting over scraps rather than coming together and demanding more. So the first part is acknowledge that you're racist. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, Regina always says, which I think is right, is, is your silence is violence, you know, like start when, when things are happening in real time, start checking yourself. And, um, and then I would say this, like um, having been in community with white women, the majority of my life and having been their token, and it makes me sick to think how I was used um, by them in that way, you know, um, I don't know that you can really understand how violent you are until and unless you surround yourself in whatever way with those people that you have harmed. And I don't even know, I'm not talking about friends because there's no reason brown and black women should trust white women to be their friends. I'm talking about start consuming everything you can by black and brown women in the anti-racism space. So reading White Fragility, great. That's written by about a white woman. That is not, that is the beginning. Um, but if Glennon Doyle is your anti-racism goddess, you got a problem. You know, if, if Alyssa Milano is your anti-racism goddess, you've got a problem. Start buying up and reading every book written by a black indigenous or brown woman on anti-racism. Start listening to podcasts by black and brown women on anti-racism. You know, start following on Twitter and Facebook every black and brown woman you can find who are talking about anti-racism because you can't. And and by the way, we're all plenty of women of color think Regina and I are out of our minds and we have the wrong strategy. Um, You know, it's that racism is not the elephant in the room. It's the room. This is the biggest fucking problem we have in this country. It's not going to, it's going to take 20,000 different strategies. If we knew what the right strategy was, we wouldn't be here right now. So instead of like, you know, Start following people who are attacking this problem from different ways and different places. Follow Asian women, follow Mexican women, follow black women, follow indigenous women. You know, it's follow the whole rate, like the whole scope and, and start synthesizing and listening and shut up, shut up. That's, I, I think that is like white women have got to shut up and listen for once. I would add to that, not just listen but believe what people are saying. Mm-hmm. People are telling you their lived experience. You know, I think it's great that we have Robin D'Angelo and Waking Up White and all of that, but guess where they get their data from those who lived with racism. So believe what you hear. That's right, Regina. That's absolutely right. You know, just like white women want men to believe them around sexual harassment and sexual assault, which they should. We also are women, um, but they don't want to believe black, indigenous, and brown women when we talk about racism. Everything you've said has been so good and so much to glean from, so much knowledge and so much wisdom. And listening to both of you really, in a way, sounds like many conversations that Jen and I have with other guests on the podcast we're saying the same thing we've been saying, and this is not something that is unique to um, this moment. This is what we've learned from our ancestors. This is what we've learned from civil rights activists um, that have gone before us in listening, listening to what black and brown and indigenous voices are saying. 
um, and, and don't stop there. Then what can you do in your lives, in your homes, first of all, in your communities to begin to tear down these systems of, of racism and white supremacy? So what is, what would you leave with our audience um, as we're, we're talking about how, um, and Syra, you just said, it's not the, racism is not the elephant in the room. It is the room. So what would you like to leave with our listeners? I think the, for some reason, it is so hard for white people to step up and call a thing a thing. But that's where it's got to start. You have got to, number one, acknowledge. Number two, call other people out. If you are doing this work, I don't care what color you are, you are going to lose things. You are going to lose jobs. You're going to lose relationships. It is not a win-win. It's a lose game. But nobody wins if white people don't step up and start telling the truth. Our whole country is founded on lies. When, when you don't step up, you perpetuate the lies. You perpetuate racism. You perpetuate perpetuate not doing the right thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, our whole thing is radical honesty and not just telling the truth about others and our history, but telling the truth about ourselves. And so I would say, stop lying to yourself about yourself. And you can be part of the problem and you can be part of the solution. You can be on the receiving end of oppression and the giving end of oppression. How does that work for me? I'm on the receiving end of anti- I mean, I'm on the receiving end of racism from white people, sexism from all men, and I'm on the giving end of anti-Indigenous and anti-Black racism. I was trained to do that. And now that I'm able to say that and, and acknowledge that and fully internalize that, I can stop the behaviors, which I have. You know, it's I, I, look, I'm still who I am, and I'm learning every day, and I have to check myself all the time. But stop being afraid of the truth. And look, it's not just white people. I mean, the, in some ways, the people who hate me the most are Indian men um, and, and to some degree Indian women because um, South Asians, look at what the British did to my country, India. They committed genocide. The reason we have a diaspora is because of white supremacy in India. My parents didn't want to be here, you know, um, but they have a hard time accepting that, you know, they are South Asians, Muslim, Muslim, South Asians, Muslims, Muslim presenting South Asians. We are, we are, you know, very, very discriminated against in this country. And we commit violence against black people. We have to acknowledge that ourselves. So I, my call to action for everybody is be honest, be honest with yourself about who you are. It doesn't make you a bad person. We've all been trained in various ways and we can't change what we don't acknowledge about ourselves. And I will add, just I'd like to throw this in so they know. Black people know this. We know that everybody thinks they're better than us. That's not news. It's the binary thinking that we get so caught in, right? It's like you're either good or you're bad. Yep. And your challenge to us to be able to hold that tension of truth requires that we hold that tension of both the good and the bad. And just what you had said, Syra, you can be part of the problem and part of the solution. I love that. You know, it's like, let's just get honest and let's do this work and get dirty and figure this stuff out. 
Yep. But first we have to figure it out on our own. Like we have to see ourselves for who we are before we can quote come together. And I, my concern is sometimes when we talk about like, let's come together and all that, it's asking the most oppressed to actually just like sweep things under the rug. And being an older person, one of these things that I know about life, the quality of your life is very much connected to the inter inner work that you do. It's all about you and doing the inner work. And if you don't do the inner work, you're not going to have the quality of life. And that means acknowledging tough stuff, dealing with it, and then being able to be of some benefit to the universe. Mm. We could go, of course, on and on with this conversation and go in so many other directions. Um, but I, I, I think that I'd love to end it with you both sharing where people can follow you, where they can get information about Race to Dinner. When can we keep our eye out for the book? Um, and how can people follow you? Sure. Twitter. Um, Twitter is great for both of us. Facebook is great for both of us. Um, I'd say find all of those things on our website, www.race2dinner.com, two being the number two. Um, And we'll keep everyone updated. We're just now getting started with writing the book. So I think um, they're looking for a winter 2021 or early 2022 publication date. Wonderful. We are so um, excited to continue to follow both of you and your work and what you're doing with Race to Dinner, uh, watching it grow. Are are Race to Dinners around the country or tell us about that? So we do them all over the country. Um, And right now we're doing um, Race to Cocktails, Race to Coffee um, over Zooms. So if people want to do things digitally right now, we're completely open for business and have been doing that. Wonderful. Syra and Regina, thank you both so much for being thank with us. You for, thank you both. And thank you for what you do in this space also. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. And for today's joy moment, here are Tina and Regina. Can you share a particular moment of joy that you've had this past week? Yeah, I guess the particular moment of joy would be uh, my grandson graduated from high school. You know, they didn't get all the pomp and circumstances, but he's going on to a University of Colorado engineering school and he got to take some stuff to his room and he was so excited. He sent me a video and we did a Zoom call and I, you know, I just, I, I love it when my grandchildren and children set goals for themselves and then they see themselves accomplishing it. So that's been a big goal for him. So I'm very, very happy. And it made me very happy that he was so excited. Wonderful, wonderful. And thank you to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know 